This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The end of an era for the Cleveland Guardians as Terry Francona will stand in that home dugout at Progressive Field for the final time as manager. The team is making sure he goes out with an honor, even if it's something he didn't ask for. Hello and welcome to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardians beat reporter for MLB.com and Sarah Langs, researcher and reporter for MLB.com as well. Sarah, I don't know how we've gotten here so quickly, but at the time that we're recording this, we're getting into play on Wednesday, September 27th, which means there's only five days left of the regular season and then we can get into postseason and all the craziness that comes with that. I have no idea how we've gotten here. I was just realizing that this morning. I was texting with somebody saying I can't wait for October and that I can't wait to see what these last few days are going to bring. And I'm in my head counting, okay, last how many days? Five days? How is it only five days? I have no idea how we have gotten here. But I wanted the first thing that we discussed today to be another final five days. And that appears to be, or is officially, I don't know, people seem to be talking about as if it's official, but we have no idea, Terry Francona's managerial career. So I've told you so many times how grateful I am to the baseball gods, baseball world, that he is the first manager you have covered full-time in baseball, obviously being there the entire time you've been the beat reporter. I mean, it's been a week of just constant. It's not even speculation. So we talked to him yesterday. This would be Tuesday. It's ahead of his final home series um, at Progressive Field, Tuesday, Wednesday against the Reds. And he's calling it the worst kept secret in baseball because we all know, but he won't, he won't say the words I'm retiring. I don't know why. I don't know why those words won't be said because we all know. And he's answering questions about it. He's talking about how weird it might be next year when he's sitting at home. He's talking about the fact that he came to this decision in June. He's talking all very bluntly about all of this, but yet still won't say the words, yep, I'm going to be retiring. Um, He has more surgeries coming up because he's just a walking, I've said it before, medical nightmare. And he'd be the first to tell you this. Um, he has to get his shoulder replaced, I think. And then he has two hernia surgeries, um, that he has to have as soon as the season's done. And so he's talked about it. He said, I've just, I keep getting beat up and I feel like I'm using the off seasons to try to get healthy enough for opening day and then get beat up all over again during the season and then have to get healthy again in the off seasons. That recipe isn't working anymore. And he said he needs to go get healthy for life. So it's clear it's coming. I just don't know why he won't say the R word of retirement. I don't get it. He won't say it yet. 
Um, mostly because he says he doesn't want the attention, but the attention's there. Um, he joked because tonight uh, on Wednesday they're going to be handing out thank you Tito t-shirts to the first 20,000 fans who show up to the ballpark. There's going to be a video tribute to him pregame. Um, and then all tickets in the upper deck were being sold for $11 to in honor of his 11 seasons in Cleveland. So, I mean, he joked and said, once you hand out t-shirts, you can't go back. This has to be. <laughs> but so we all know he just he won't say the words I am retiring. Whatever. I digress. But um, he needs the attention as much as he doesn't want it. Um, he's as important to baseball as baseball has been important to him. He's a baseball lifer. He was born into this. His father was in the majors when he was born, and he grew up bouncing around from clubhouse to clubhouse. And, and just this this world became his life before he even willingly chose it to like it just it's all he knew um and then he was drafted out of high school and with the support from his dad decided to go play at college and then became like the best college player in the country and um was then drafted by the expos and then he played baseball for bounced around for a decade and then figured out that it was time for him to transition out of it and uh then ended up in a coaching career and after two weeks of possibly becoming a real estate agent, um, that was, he always jokes, like, he got stuck, he went and got um, some, took a real estate course for two weeks, and then Buddy Bell called him and asked him to be a coach for him, and he went back up, and he turned the books back in and said, no one's buying a house from me, and he left, (laughs) Um, and then it, began this unbelievable managerial career, whether it was in the minors and he was Michael Jordan's coach or he was in the majors for three different big league teams. Um, He ended the curse of the Bambino in 2004 in his first year with the Red Sox. Uh, He had four miserable years in Philly um, where he just jokes about what the fans put him through and he understands it. He's like, I know we weren't good. I get it. Um, And then Cleveland, he was just... He never won here, and right now Cleveland is the longest drought, active drought in the majors of uh, winning a World Series. It's been since 1948, and it seems just too storybook for him to be the one who ended it. And they got so close in 2016. They got all the way to Game 7 of the World Series, and instead it was the Cubs who had that drought ended too. So I guess it was fitting that it was another team that it had been a while. But... um. The numbers with him are ridiculous. Everything is pointing to Hall of Fame as it should. But the biggest thing is just the personality that he is in baseball is going to be missed so much. And that's sort of what I wrote about on Monday, talking about all of the all of his colleagues across the game, whether it was his players or just other managers who have been inspired by him or who have coached for him and now have become managers and just their perspectives of what it's going to be like without Terry Francona in baseball and the void that he's leaving. I think the biggest thing is the humor. I don't think anyone enjoys playing baseball more than Terry Francona. Just like the everyday grind of it can be a lot, but he just has so much fun. He's so self-deprecating. It makes him feel like he's a regular person, but he's not. He's a larger-than-life figure. And But when you're sitting down and he's telling you about how he fell asleep with uh, a pile of pasta on his chest in bed... (sighs) And he woke up because he thought his ribs were breaking in his dream. And he woke up and his ribs were sore, but it was his TV remote that was jammed into his rib cage. Like, 
then all of a sudden you're like, well, this guy can't be that scary, can he? He's just like all of us. And so I think the biggest thing um, is that the personality is going to be missing from baseball. He's going to be, he's going to be missed. And whether he ends up figuring out a way to stay in baseball as like a special advisor or come back after a couple years in a different type of a role once he's a little bit healthier, that all remains to be seen. But all we know is in 2024, it's going to feel weird without Terry Francona. You know, my first real um, experience with that personality, beyond, you know, seeing in 2004, seeing press conferences, all of that was when I got to ESPN. He had, of course, been at ESPN in his year in between, between the Red Sox and coming over to Cleveland. And, you know, we sit around, we watch games. And early in 2016, there would always be a Tito story. Something about, you know, him maybe getting lost in the ESPN campus somewhere. Or something about him being on his way to that Cleveland interview. I've heard the story many times of how he got to his interview uh, for that job. And that is quite a story. But just... He was always mentioned in this loving way. You know, we would see a game, we'd see him going out there to make a pitching change, whatever it would be. And one of the analysts or talent, somebody, or a producer, Greg Colley, whoever it would be, would see him and kind of start giggling and have a great story about him. And that's when I really started to learn that behind the scenes of who that person is. And I'm so heartened to see that because you see who he is. You see who he is in those pressers and in those sort of public moments. And it was really great to hear that this is who he is. And again, when I met you and I got to know you, we became friends. I remember just feeling so, I felt so safe knowing that you had him knowing that that's the manager you got to interact with every single day. And nothing against other managers. There are so many. I mean, I'm so glad that Kenny Landry has both right now. And there are so many others, but it just felt like he was a perfect first manager to cover every single day. And so I'm so glad for you, but I'm so interested to see what next year looks like. I mean, spring training, day one, is going to be so, so different. It is. And I, I, I want to say, I mean, it's a, it's a weird job. This is a weird job. And um, I remember I was an intern before I was full-time. And when Jordan Bastion was on this beat, I filled in for him in Baltimore. I remember getting a laundry list of do's and don'ts to interact with Terry Francona. Um, he can be a tough shell to crack at first. He has, he, you need to earn his trust when you're an everyday reporter. And so when I did get this job full time, I was like, oh, how am I going to, how am I going to break into this? Um, but it's easier than maybe what it seems like. And once you get into that little circle of trust that he has, he is just truly, I mean, one of the most entertaining people on the planet. The stories are constant. Um, they're hilarious. And I think it's even harder 
in this field as a woman and it's very clear i mean everyone knows it it's it comes with its um its own set of rules or guidelines or challenges that maybe might might not be there across the board but i want to say like with terry francona i mean the way that he has always treated me as equally as everyone else in the room i mean i'm the only woman on the beat there and um especially who travels or shows up every single day um and the way that that has been so equal in not just making sure that i'm treated the same but also making sure that i'm being made fun of the same and to me that's just as important and you want to make sure that you're getting yelled at or made fun of or joked with as much as everyone else in the room and he's always been that and i think that it's just i think there's a weird stigma in this world of making sure that Equal treatment sometimes ends up being tiptoeing around the woman and making sure that they feel extra comfortable. And it's just like, it doesn't have to be that deep. And the way that he was able to just so effortlessly make fun of me or joke with me or put the guard down and not feel like it's ever tiptoeing and not caring and just like equal treatment of whatever he would have been with any other reporter in the room. Uh, I'm eternally grateful because it was just such a fun experience for five seasons and I wouldn't have traded it for anything else. So it's going to be weird to not have those interactions every day, but I just wanted to at least explain like why I've cherished these five seasons so much because my gosh, it was just, it was so fun and it was such a safe and enjoyable environment. Now everybody should go to the Cleveland Guardians website and read your story like I'm going to do it the second we're done here. So everybody, please do that to prime yourself for these final five days. You're so funny. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, we can move on from Tito. Um, I think he would want us to move on from him because he hates all of this and it's part of the reason why. He won't use the R word just yet, and we're going to have to wait until my guess is they do their exit interviews after the season, because even after his final game, I don't even see him saying that word just yet. But we'll get there. We'll take a quick break right now. And well, I guess we can sort of stay in like a brief Cleveland topic just because I heard a 119.2 mile per hour home run yesterday. And if anyone knows anything about the Guardians, you don't hear that very frequently. So I was in shock. That was jaw-dropping. We can talk about that more when we come back. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mandy, that's Sarah, and we can talk about Ellie De La Cruz. Like, there's no point in delaying this because I I know he's impressive. I know the stats are there. I know right when he came up, he was the story across Major League Baseball, and I felt like his name was everywhere. And maybe that's quieted a little bit, but it shouldn't because he is everything that he's advertised to be, and that doesn't always happen with a really big prospect coming up. Sometimes they take a little bit to settle in. I'm telling you, he had two home runs yesterday, and they were both ridiculous. The first one was like 420 or something like that, and I remember thinking, "Oof, geez, that's that's (laughs) he's he's a lot." And then 
<laughs> that was child's play compared to what he did later. 467 feet at 119.2 miles per hour off the bat. I literally just sat back in my chair and I just, my eyes got so big. I'm like, I've never seen anything like that here before. And it was, he is truly just something else. And he's a large human being, but uh, I, I understand where that comes from. But the fact that he is being what he is in his first year, this is just truly unbelievable. I mean, the way I wrote this out in our little rundown was, what does a 119.2 mile an hour home run sound like? Because I've never been in person to hear a ball hit that hard. And the moment that happened, there are like five things that happened in my head at once. One, trying to find all the contacts, which I'll say in a moment. Two, oh my goodness, Mandy witnessed this. <laughs> like, this isn't just another Giancarlo Sam. This isn't something else like that. This happened in front of Mandy. And then three, uh, one thing we do at MLB.com, if you've ever seen the video clips sometimes on Twitter or X, um, where they replay a home run and they put the stack-cast metrics. That's actually me and my colleagues, Andrew Simon and company in our research group, were the ones who request us. <laughs> so at the moment that happened, Andrew Simon, who is our great manager in the group, puts in our chat in all caps, Ellie, and then I said, please, and uh, added, like we uh, mentioned, the person who's in charge of cutting the clips over the MLB network, and then we're all putting in the numbers so they have them. But yeah, all those three things at once, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, what does that sound like? It's it's different than anything you'll ever hear before. <laughs> I mean, or ever, I should say, than I've ever heard before. It was... If a feeling of a no doubter could be a sound, that is what, when you hear that, it's like, oh my goodness, where is that going to land? Um, it's that sound that prompts everyone on the field to just stand still when their instinct is to just try to chase the ball, but they know that there's no point. It's, I couldn't, I'm telling you that noise is just, it's different and it was fun to watch him react to it. It's fun to just watch something like that where you're going home and talking about that still after you leave the ballpark. Um, 467 feet is ridiculous. Uh, all of it, I think, is it's just it's unlike what you see on a day-to-day -day basis because 119 is not what you hear or see on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think the hardest hit batted ball that I witnessed in person was actually Ronnie Mauricio earlier this month. He had his first career hit for the Mets, and it was like 117.2 maybe. It was the hardest hit first career hit under Sackcast for anybody. And I heard it, and the moment I heard it, I started researching. Like, I knew. So I can only imagine that in home run form. So it was the hardest hit out of ball by any Reds player 
under sarcasm, not just Homan, but hardest hit anything. He surpassed a 118.3 um, mile an hour home run from Aristides Aquino, who, if you remember back in like 2019, came up and struck out a lot, but hit balls really hard when he did. And then I love this. There's only six players who have had a 119 mile an hour home run or faster under Sackhouse, including the postseason. So you saw one of the, I think, 11 hardest hit home runs ever under, under tracking. So Giancarlo Sanchez, five of those. Aaron Judge had two. And then Ellie De La Cruz, Ronald Acuna Jr., Manny Machado, and Kyle Schwarber each have one. Schwarber's was that home run we talked about where I had you watch it uh, live right on the podcast, the, uh, the one off Dervish in the postseason last year. And Acuna's won the uh, 121.2 that he had at Dodger Stadium earlier this year. And then the other thing is that, <coughs> as you said, he's a rookie. So he is one of three rookies to have a 119 plus mile an hour batted ball. So any type of base hit or uh, under sack has Aaron Judge had four in 2017. Two of those were those home runs. L.A. Dela Cruz was one. And then O'Neill Cruz last year, if you remember, had a single that was absolutely screaming to right field uh, in Pittsburgh, and that was the hardest hit batted ball under Sackhouse. So those are the only guys to come up and do this as a rookie. It's ridiculous. And it's I if the Reds can find their way into the postseason, uh, I think Ellie De La Cruz in the national spotlight is only going to get crazier. So I'm excited to see if that can play out. Um, geez, watching him every day, that would be enjoyable i got a peek of it last night and i'd sign up for that um i see we have on our topics here lead off history yeah can you enlighten me i like how i gave you no context zero but i i'm I'm liking this i'm liking being blindsided here how about you enlighten me of what you want want to go down the path of here i will so uh speaking to guys who will be in the postseason I don't want to talk about the MVP debate because it's impossible in the National League. I do think Acuna will win, and I think it's very well deserved. But I think you can make an incredible case for Mookie Betts as well. But I want to talk about the fact that single-handedly this year, these two guys have transformed the leadoff spot. So Ronald Acuna Jr., now has 41 home runs. That is the most avalanche off spot in a single season. And then Mookie Betts has 39, which is tied for second. With George Springer in 2019 and Alfonso Soriano in 2006. I think Mookie Betts will hit another home run between now and Sunday. So if so, these will be the first two 40 homer leadoff hitters we have ever seen. If you go back to our parents' era, 
Ricky Hendersons and whoever you want to think of. No one would have said, oh yeah, leadoff guy is going to hit 40 home runs. So I just kind of wanted to call that out. And then the other part is the RBI. So Mookie Best the other day set the record with his 105th RBI. So that is the most RBI at the leadoff spot in the season. He broke a record that had been held by Charlie Blackman in 2017 uh, with 103. And now Acuna has 103. So I don't even feel comfortable saying, I mean, I guess Mookie set the record, but who knows how this ends up by Sunday. And then you have the fact that Marcus Semien has, I believe, 98. So... He is too RBI shy of being the fifth leadoff guy to have 100 RBI all out of the leadoff spot in the season. Darren Ursad, the other name I didn't mention, he had 100 on the dot in 2000. But we're going to end the season with five guys in MLB history since RBI became official in 1920 to have 100 RBI leadoff spot, and three of those to be this year. I just think it's really cool to see a position that even when you and I were growing up, I mean, I was a mess man. It was Jose Reyes. He would get on base. He would steal bases, but you weren't going in for 40 homers and 100 RBI. And now we have three guys who... I mean, Semyon himself has like 30-plus homers. So we're going to have three guys with 30-plus homers and 100 RBI at the last one. I mean, the homers are obviously on the player, and that's just, it's really cool. And it goes back to, like, Mookie Betts not thinking he belonged in the home run derby. And it's just like, bro, look at your numbers. Uh, come on, let's let's focus here. Um, and... Uh, but the the RBIs are different for me because I'm thinking of like how those lineups must be relatively solid one through nine. You have to have runners ahead of you, and you're thinking in that leadoff spot, you're relying on seven, eight, nine guys to be able to get on base. And this Cleveland offense, for me, of what I've watched every day this year, has not been great. And especially the bottom of that lineup has been rough. Like guys like Miles Straw have had a really difficult time the last two years. Um, although he hit his first home run this year in a two, almost two full seasons. That was funny. Um, weird. God, this team is weird. Um, but like, I'm, I'm just thinking of it of like, okay, they, you think of it in a Cleveland perspective or a smaller team, smaller market, whatever, right around 500 team, not as successful. Their heavy hitters are up top. You're thinking one through four, maybe one through five, they're solid. And then it gets kind of iffy after that. And it's it's tough to have a complete team, a complete one through nine that can give your leadoff hitter those types of opportunities. So um makes sense to me in some of those, whenever they are the ones who are the playoffs teams, that those guys yeah. are the ones who are, are being able to rack up the RBIs at the top of the order or at the very, very top leadoff spot. But the home runs, that's all on them. And I'm, I'm thinking of how different that perspective is because it's really not been like it's that long since you would never have considered something like that or thought of something like that. 
remember when I was in high school, my softball team, yes, this is what I'm relating to. Um, my softball team, we weren't that great. And um, there was a couple of us who were able to consistently get on base. And our one power hitter, I mean, she was our best hitter. And she was, by definition, a cleanup number four and they threw her in the leadoff spot, which never made sense to any of us. But it was more like, okay, well, if we, we need someone who can just hit. And why would we not have the person who's hitting the best just hit the most number of times possible? Um, and it sort of worked. And uh, I mean, I guess. But at that point. But even at that point, I'm thinking like that was 2012. And I'm thinking all of us are looking at it like that is the weirdest concept. Like, no, your your big power hitter needs to be three or four because they need to have those guys ahead of them. If they're going to hit a home run, you need people on base. But it's like, okay, well, when you want that one person who's going to get a fifth at bat, don't you want it to be the person who's been the most successful for you? So there's definitely a different thought process there. And for some of these teams, it's paying off when you have someone like Mookie Betts and um, – I think it's it's definitely a different way of thinking, and it hasn't been that long that baseball in general has thought that way. Yeah, I'm really, really cool, to, uh, and it'll be really, really cool to see in, like, 10 years how these lineups look and whether there are guys down the minors right now with the Mookie Best or Ronald Acuna Jr. or Marcus Semin type of skill set who are going to end up the lead off hitter. I mean, I think what the Dodgers have, having Mookie and then Freddie, like that's the idea. And it'll be really interesting to see, but I just think it's really cool to see this happen. And I know we have a lot of kind of historic things happening this year, some of which are being attributed to rule changes or what have you. This has nothing to do with that. And I really like that too. This is something that has been building, right? Mookie had 30 plus home runs last year of the leadoff spot. And uh, Kyle Schwarber had a handful out of the leadoff spot last year as well. So we've been moving in this direction, but it's really cool to have three guys who are all going to be setting records or ending up on these lists this season i we're now five days away we've said it at the top of the show of the regular season ending and there's so much undecided both wild card races are insane um i i know we finally just had the blue brewers had a big celebration yesterday so a whole bunch of pictures from that um but it's just like it's just crazy to me how much is undecided how much could change it's weird to see the Astros not be the Astros. Um, it's all of this is so strange. And you have the Mariners, the Astros, the Blue Jays, who are so ridiculously tight. You look on the other side. I'm telling you, I'm excited for the final five days because it seems like it's going to be pure chaos. Um, and we'll have so many moments, I'm sure, that we can talk about of something fun in baseball, which we're about to do right now. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about the races, anything that you're excited for over the next five days before we do move into our final segment of the week? I mean, all of it. I just wanted to call out my favorite thing. I say favorite a lot and there's okay. like 5 million favorites, but we're going to go with them. It's my Sarah. favorite change 
that baseball has made over the last handful of years is the fact that every game starts at 3 Eastern on that Sunday. The fact that everything is happening at once. We've had years where everything was decided and all we're watching for was maybe set races if a guy gets to a certain number of home runs, what have you. This year, I would be shocked if everything is decided at 3 p.m. before those games begin. So I'm really, really excited to be really, really stressed out <laughs> watching everything, having no idea. I mean, everyone here knows that I do stats for Sunday night baseball, so that cover carries over into the postseason. I'll be doing stats behind the scenes for one of the wildcard series. And currently, I have no idea what teams are going to be involved. So I'm sitting here thinking, you know, normally for a Sunday night game, I work on my prep on Thursday and Friday. I do certain things leading up to the game. Our series starts Tuesday. So we would push that back a few days. But it's not like I'm going to know what I'm prepping for on Saturday (laughs) or Sunday either. And then Monday becomes this, like, such a stressful, busy, and wonderful day. It was the same thing last year, working on a big story for the um, World Series program and prepping for a wild card series, but at least for that one. I think I had known for a few days we would have mess Padres, but I'm sitting here right now and I have no clue. And I'm like, I don't even know who I'm working on notes for. So I love it this way. I wouldn't have it any other way. But I hope everybody enjoys Sunday. All right, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we can do our favorite segment. And we'll go through our favorite moments from baseball over the past week. Welcome back to the Baltimore Park Dimensions podcast. I'm Mandy, she's Sarah, and of course, our favorite producer, Alana Schreiber, will be joining us for our favorite segment. So Alana, do you want to start us off with your favorite moment from baseball over the last few days? Yes. So Sarah, I know you were nervous I was going to take yours, but I think I'm actually going into Mandy's territory because oh boy, I really just can't get over Tito this week. I mean, of course, you guys already talked about, he sort of announced his retirement. Um, Mandy, I loved your article on him, but I've also just loved all of your Tito anecdotes. I keep thinking about the time you said he tried to microwave noodles and they didn't cook all the way through, so he ate them dry and then chipped a tooth. Um, But I mean, he's just such a colorful manager and there's been so many amazing stories, but The one that really kind of sticks out to me is, you know, as I mentioned pretty much once a podcast, I don't live anywhere near professional baseball. So I'm always kind of looking for different ways to connect to baseball living in the South. Um, And this year I spent quite a bit of time in Birmingham and I learned that Tito used to be the manager of the Birmingham Barons, a very historic team in Birmingham. And Not only that, but he was the manager when Michael Jordan was there, which is incredible. So I was reading this interview with him this morning, and 
about how like they played pickup basketball together once outside Tito's apartment and how when Michael Jordan like passed him the ball he dislocated his finger and then quote quietly put it back in place um (laughs) I just love the image of Tito and MJ playing basketball in the middle of Birmingham it's so incredible um so I'm really gonna miss all your stories on him Mandy and I think that it is pretty fitting I know we've also talked about this um how in June MLB is hosting a regular season game at Rickwood Field in Birmingham Alabama Tito didn't manage the team while it was there but it's really historic feel just forever tied to the Barons and anyone who's ever been a part of that franchise so even though the game is supposed to honor Willie Mays and the Negro Leagues I feel like a tiny slice of it will honor Tito uh I want to just say I mean any any story from Tito is always so funny but his Michael Jordan stories are always hilarious the way that he handled that situation. It was so funny how he would talk about the media coverage and how that went from like zero to a hundred real quick whenever Michael got involved. And um, I, I, they're still good friends. He always talks about the fact that you don't need to talk too, too much because he sees the attention that Michael gets all the time and how ridiculous it is of how Michael's always in the spotlight. So he tries to stay back a little bit more and not add into that. But the way that he's talked about his relationship with Michael Jordan is so cool. And I think the biggest thing that I take away from it is that Tito can't help but praise him in the way that he tried to handle that transition into baseball and how hard he worked and how he was there before everyone else at the field. And he was trying to learn. And he he was like, you can tell why he's Michael Jordan. Like, the work, the hustle, all of that's there. And it's just such a cool perspective to have Terry Francona be able to talk about what Michael Jordan was like in his non-dominant sport. It's really, really fun to hear all of those stories. I feel like this is the uh, third time that you mentioned Brickwood Field now, Juan, and I know I personally would love to hear more about it. So hopefully there'll be a lot more content uh, coming out leading up to that game that might help people be educated about that (laughs) yeah i mean it's such an amazing and historic field it's the oldest in the country professionally and i really hope that everyone gets to learn a little bit more about all of the different stories that that took place there including you know stories from the barons team itself stories that tito definitely has Yeah, no one knows more about it than Alana. I am 1,000% confident in that. Okay, Alana, thank you. Sarah, do you have your moment? I do. I was worried that Alana might take it because mine is Master Jason. We know she is a Mets fan. So on Sunday in uh, the Mets game in Philly, the Phillies had one of their prospects, Ryan Kirkering, make his major league debut. We have seen all kinds of family reactions and, you know, significant other reactions, what have you. This was the most emotional inning I had ever seen. So he's a pitcher. He comes out, he gets two strikeouts, and I was watching the SNY theme, and they were showing his family almost the entire time. His father was crying the entire time and not just like tearing up. Like again, we've seen the whole gamut of different emotional reactions. His father was like 
straight bawling the entire time. And it was so, so emotional to see, so wonderful to see. And by the way, he has a really, really good slider sweeper. I'm not sure which one it is. And he's going to be a really, really good pitch for them in the postseason. I know Kyle Schwarber was uh, <laughs> running around in the clubhouse on Tuesday when they clinched and just yelling like, a hundred, a hundred slider at him because he will be on that postseason roster and uh, he will be really clutch for them. But his father crying through the entire inning was just amazing. And again, it wasn't tears for TV. It wasn't. It was just so raw. And I hadn't seen someone cry like that in a really long time. So it was incredible. It really doesn't get better than those types of stories. I know I'm partial to always like little kid stories. But truly, for debuts, when families are in the crowd and you, you, you know where they are, the camera can spot them. It's just... In that moment, it's so special for all of us to see what it means to them. But then it's also special to think about the fact that they're going to have that forever. They can cut that clip. They can give everything that we're watching. They can keep that. And that's just special in itself. So I love a good, like, emotional family watching, whatever it might be. Um, And so, yeah, I'm glad that we can call attention to those whenever they come around because they're they're always so great. I guess for mine, I I like a weird, there's a weird stat in here, so I'm going to bring it up because I, I want Sarah to get weird stats. Um, it's really dumb and it's just so irrelevant, but I really want to bring it up because I know uh, my good friend who's the head of the community department for the Guardians would appreciate Sarah knowing her stats that she keeps track of. So um, the Guardians, they really have a fantastic charity outreach. They really do. Um, and they have a lot of guys who are really into it. Like Tristan McKenzie, I've talked about him a lot. Um, he's part of this too. So they, they've had, uh, a lot of meetups with a local high school's chess club. Um, they play with them all the time. Stephen Kwan, Tristan McKenzie, Bo Naylor, um, David Fry's pretty into it. I'm trying to think of the guys who are like really hardcore chess people, um, on this team, but they really, really get into it. Will Benson, um, who's now with the Reds, but when he was with the Guardians, he was like the best in the room. Um, but their chess was huge, especially last year, 2022. That's all they did in the clubhouse. Um, little less now, I think probably because Benson's not there, but it's very prevalent. And they have tournaments with the local high school chess club all the time. And I think that's so cool. One, imagine these kids in, at, at chess club at high school and somehow they're now partnered with their local major league baseball team and they set up tables in the home dugout and they just bounce around from table to table with all these different chess boards and uh, a student plays Tristan McKenzie and a student's playing Stephen Kwan and a student's playing Bo Naylor and the winner advances and you keep going and you keep going. Um, I think... I. Th- well, what was cool was that Will Benson, because the Reds are in town, came over, got to the ballpark early, and joined in with the chess club yesterday. Super cool. Um, he's really close with everyone in the Guardians organization still. Um, and I think he was in the championship round yesterday with one of the kids from one of the local high schools. But to me, that's just so special. 
Um, they have the kids out for the game. They have this picture up of all of them um, out on the field with the players. And the players are more into it, it seems like, even than the kids. Like, they just, they love competition, obviously. They're professional athletes. Um, but even if it's something as small or silly as, like, a little board game, they are just so into it. And they've made connections with these kids they all have Guardians Chess Club like T-shirts that were designed by the team, and like the kids wear them, the players wear them. Everyone in the clubhouse has one. They always wear them, um, and they've just been so close with this high school all year long. So I think that's really cool. But what's fun is Megan Ganser, who's my one of my very good friends, and she orchestrates all of these community events um, for the Guardians. She keeps her own stat sheet of like when guys do community events and how they end up playing that night. And I need to get more details from her on Jimenez's numbers. I think I think the team is like five and0 whenever Jimenez has like some sort of community event that day. But the one from yesterday, is she was talking with all the group, introducing the event, getting everything together. And she was like, just so you guys know, the only other time that Bo Naylor has participated in this, uh, he hit a home run that night. And Naylor was like, dude, thanks for putting the pressure on me. And then he went out and had a home run last night. And Megan was in the, in the press box like, I told him if he just oh participates gosh. in chess club, he hits a home run. So on the two days that he's participated in chess club, he has hit a home run that night as well. So I'm just letting you know, if there's a Bo Naylor homer, know there's a chance that he played chess with some high schoolers That is amazing. I'm so glad you mentioned <laughs> this because I saw the photos and I saw, you know, some of the coverage of this. And it's so great. And I want to say, like, no stereotypes or anything like that. But you're a high schooler. You're in chess club. You're certainly not the high school. I mean, anyone can do anything. But I would say that of all of the after school activities you could be involved in, that is probably the last one that you would think would lead you to a major league baseball team. You know, you think maybe you're on the baseball team. You guys win the state championship. The team will have you down. You'll get to meet the guys. I love that it's the kids in this chess club were the ones who are now friends with the players. That's perfect. That's what baseball should be all about. I just love that so much. Well, you talk to some of the players and they will always say like, oh yeah, I was kind of dorky. I was in chess club and like I did this. I loved game, video games. Like they all self-admit that that is, that stereotype is dorky and it shouldn't be because they're all the best athletes that we yeah. are watching. And so just because you have a specific interest doesn't mean that you get labeled from that. And I think that this relationship is sort of beating that stigma of whatever that label, that stereotype is. I think that they've done an incredible job of making friends with these guys and allowing them to see that, okay, all these players self-diagnose themselves as a dork because they like these things, but they shouldn't have because look at them now and this is awesome and nobody has to feel weird about any interest that they have. And so I think they've done a really great job of seeing the Tristan McKenzie's, the Bo Naylor's and the Stephen Kwan's and all these guys who are just like chess obsessed, especially Will Benson now that he's out of there, but like, my gosh, he's so into it. Um, 
so yeah, I think it is fun. And to your point, I think it's great that they're reaching out to different types of little act- activity groups that you might not have expected them to. Um, but they really do a fantastic job in the community. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about, which is why I brought it up in my favorite segment. But that'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or you have any suggestions for us at all, please leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we'll see you in the postseason. season